This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is poet Erica Meitner, whose works include Inventory at the All-Night Drugstore, Ideal Cities, Makeshift Instructions for Vigilant Girls, Copia, and Holy Moly Carry Me. She is currently the director of the MFA program in creative writing and the undergraduate creative writing program at Virginia Tech. She grew up in Queens, but now lives in rural Appalachia. We began the discussion with Meitner sharing how she got interested in poetry. So I'm first generation American. I grew up in an English speaking household, but my parents' first languages, neither of them were English. My mother was born in a displaced persons camp, a refugee camp, after my grandparents got out of Auschwitz. So my mother grew up speaking Yiddish and German, and my because the refugee camp was in Stuttgart. And my father was born in 1947 in British Mandate Palestine, which then became Israel a few months later, after my paternal grandparents escaped Hitler in Czechoslovakia. So... Both my parents emigrated to the States when they were kids, my father when he was a teenager, my mother when she was younger. And so I grew up in a household being raised by basically two accountants who English was neither of their first languages. And so um, we didn't have that many books in our house, but we had a great public library, the New York City Public Library branches near us. So I read a ton, but poetry was not part of my upbringing at all. And in high school, like a lot of people, I found the high school literary magazine. I worked with a lot of different kids on the literary magazine, but I had assumed, like, I didn't think a poet was something you could be. I thought all poets were dead, like there weren't living poets, until my friend Dave, who um, has, uh, his parents were a psychologist and a professor told me that this guy named Allen Ginsberg was reading in the city and we should take the train in and go see him. And so we went, I think it was like city college or some, it was somewhere in Manhattan where we went to see Allen Ginsberg read. And Allen Ginsberg came out on stage in a giant white caftan with bongo drums, sat down and started reciting his poetry. And I thought, Oh my God, this is something you can do. Like I had no idea. (laughs) So that was kind of my first introduction outside of the school literary magazine to a living poet. So have you ever given a poetry reading with bongo drums? No. And someday I hope to move into the sort of caftan phase of my life, but I'm not there yet. There's time. There is time. (laughs) So I can tell that in your, your poetry, which is very narrative and I think revealing of your life, although you can never really be sure what's true and what's not when you're reading someone's work, that your childhood, your Jewish ancestry, your parents' immigrant status, the Holocaust, all play a big part in your identity. And I'm wondering, when you write down poems, is that sort of more salient than what you live in the everyday world? I mean, if people were just talking to you, would they know all these things about you? Or is there a special place for poetry where all of these things get concentrated and worked out on the page? I think poetry is the place where that stuff gets plumbed for me. 
I mean, I live in the South, so people know that I'm not a Southerner because I don't have a Southern accent because I talk and walk really quickly. <laughs> like those are my New York tells. But I think that um, the rest of my background is is very much invisible most of the time. And so, so poetry really is a place where I get to kind of work out that that baggage of particularly now, you know, like in our particular political moment, it's something I never thought about too much that the idea that I'm the child of a refugee and an immigrant. And it's so funny because my family doesn't, my mom saw a picture of me at a protest, an immigration protest on the local news here. I sent her like a screenshot and I had a big cardboard sign that said child of a refugee with an arrow pointing to my head. And she called me and she said, am I a refugee? And I said, yes, mom, you're a refugee. You were born in a displaced persons camp. You were born in a refugee camp. But it's so interesting that, you know, our, our self-conceptions sometimes are that we're like normal humans, that our backstories are invisible and that and that we're we're all fine. Right. But there's something about this particular political moment to me, too, that makes it important to say you know, like I am this identity when these particular identities are being vilified, when there's a rise in anti-Semitism, um, you know, and being Jewish for, for the most part is invisible when there's a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, when our government is legislating against immigration in a way that would have um, meant that my family wouldn't be able to come here, you know. So for me, poetry is a way of making that stuff visible, which becomes you know, the personal becomes political in that way. Do you have a few poems where you write about your neighbors and your neighborhood? Some of the things that you write about include that you don't have Christmas lights or that one of your neighbors also suffered infertility, but that was maybe the beginning and the end of, of where you connected. One of the driving principles of this book when I started it was this sort of exploration of Leviticus 19.18, which is the injunction, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And for me, one of the things that's been so interesting living in a place that's not a place that's like where I'm from is that my neighbors are people that I really you know, love dearly and interact with and have life cycle events with and holidays with, and they watch my children and I watch theirs. But we have really different value systems. Most of my neighbors are evangelical Christian. A lot of them have really different backgrounds from my background growing up. And, and so, um, you know, and a lot of them are a lot more politically conservative than I am. And so how do we bridge that difference was one question I had and how do we, you know, how, how do we love each other across complexities and difference is something I was really trying to explore through poems because I don't have an easy rhetorical answer for that. And so to me, the answer is in, is in verse and in narrative and in the complications I'm able to explore in that. Yeah. And I, I want to say to you, well, did you discover an answer? And I, I recognize on some level, like every poem is a striving towards its own answer or at least its own exploration. But is there a place that you discovered or got to from the beginning to the end of this collection? I don't know, <laughs> I guess is the answer. Um, in the sense that I think there are moments in the poems where things touch and become simpatico and then there are moments where things pull apart 
And so like, for example, one of the moments or things that pull me apart from my neighbors is that a lot of them are gun owners or have firearms. And that's something I would never have in my house um, and feel very strongly about. So that's a moment of, you know, divisiveness that I'm not able to solve and talk about in the poems. When I think about you saying that you're trying to figure all this stuff out, there is something that just resonates for me when you say that, which is there was a line in one of your poems that says, it's not your responsibility to finish the work. And this was something that your rabbi said. And at first you're saying it's not your responsibility to finish the work. And then later you're basically saying the work of repairing the world. That's a very famous Jewish saying. It's in vicissitudes. Yeah. Rabbi Tarfon said it is not your responsibility to finish the work. And that's this very famous, that's a really interesting, so I was raised in Reform Judaism, which is really into um, social justice and this idea of repairing the world. And this Rabbi Tarfon quote is a way to avoid despair when you're doing kind of social justice work, when the work just feels overwhelming and there's no way to feel like you're ever going to make a difference or finish it. This idea that you only have to, you know, make a dent in it, but you don't have to finish the work because finishing the work would be impossible when it's something like global warming, you know, gun violence. How do you finish that? And so that to me is something that feels really important. This idea that you are not you're not free to desist from it, but you don't have to finish it. Something that I found interesting throughout your poems was this idea of the body. I mean, the word the body came up a lot. You're dealing with some infertility issues. You're dealing with gun violence. You're dealing with just kind of your place in the world amongst your neighbors. And you're dealing with, um, you know, Holocaust survivors and displacement after World War II. And in one poem, you say, the body is everything. And in another poem, you say, I am not my body but I am. And I'm just curious to have you talk a little bit about the body, partly because, you know, poetry is so from the mind, but the space we inhabit in the world is so physical. Yeah, I think I always think of this quote by Wittgenstein, what you say, you say in a body, you can say nothing outside of this body. And this idea that um, speech, that writing to some extent is always embodied and how we experience the world has to do with the body we move through it in. And I think particularly while I was writing this book, which I, I wrote while dealing with infertility, which felt very embodied. And there were things that were happening to my body while I was doing, um, you know, medical treatments for infertility, too, um, that felt very palpable. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other piece of it is, is part of this book is about gun violence. And that made me think a lot about fragility and violence and how the body is acted upon by bullets and other violent things. And then the kind of third piece of embodiment is Part of the book is informed by raising one white son and one black son and watching them move through the world in really different bodies and how that impacted, um, you know, how the external world interacts with you. 
So all, all of those kind of three embodied things very much informed my writing of Holy Moly Carry Me. And so I, that's something where, because my poetry, I think is, is uh, very expansive and interactive with the external world. It's not, I don't really write internally driven lyric poetry in this book, particularly. The concept of embodiment is very important in their corporeality. Can you talk a little bit about the title, Holy Moly, Carry Me? When I started the book, I had been writing um, a few different poems titled Holy Moly Land, which is a title that comes from um, the visual artwork of an artist named Kim Back, who I met at an artist colony. And when I started thinking about what might make a good title for the book, I wanted something that invoked Appalachia to some extent. And I think Holy Moly Carry Me had a little bit more uplift than Holy Moly Land and had um, this cadence of almost an Appalachian hymn to me. And I kept thinking about the different ways that we carry or are carried by the people around us. And so I landed on this title and it felt right to me for the book. Just that image, holy moly, even though the the you know you start off telling us that moly was something that was found in um, the Odyssey. It was a plant called moly. But you can tell from the very beginning that there's biblical references and things that you've been thinking about. And then you said you started off with Leviticus. And, and in that first poem, Holy Moly Land, you're kind of going through time, like through ancient time and through the time of the Odyssey to superheroes and gun violence and Primo Levi. You're talking about these ideas over time that are somehow related and transforming. And at the end, I, I sort of had this sense of the ephemeral, that everything disappears and all of these energies that creates a genesis at some point ends. Etymology fascinates me in the way that language shapes our experience. And um, this exclamation, holy moly, it was really just felt compelling to me in a particular way. So I decided to explore the roots of it verbally. And as I was doing that, kept coming into more and more connections to do with violence and things that felt really applicable to our current political moment. And so in deciding to start the collection with a what basically is like what I'd call a prom or a lyric essay, it felt a little weird on one hand. On the other hand, it felt really fitting in terms of introducing all of these different themes in the book. One of the little known things about my background is before I went to do an MFA in poetry, I had actually applied to rabbinical school to be a rabbi. And I got in, but then I got into UVA to do my MFA off the wait list. The person who had been before me on the wait list had been hiking through Honduras and couldn't be reached by phone. So I ended up deciding not to go to rabbinical school and do write poems instead. But I did do a graduate degree in Jewish studies. And so a lot of the um, religious stuff that comes into my work comes through all of the time I spent studying um, philosophy and theology and scripture. Do you think there's something akin to being a poet and being a rabbi? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I have so um, where I live in South in rural Southwest Virginia, we only have a lay led Jewish community center. And some years I'm responsible for um, 
a high holiday sermon. And so um, one of the things that's so interesting to me about sermon writing is it's very much like writing a poem. It feels so similar the way that you make certain connections. I felt like your collection just gathered momentum and got more and more intense as I read it from the beginning to the end. That was just my read. You know, I feel like the urgency of the threat that we're facing. You have a poem called Threat Assessment about the violence in prisons and what goes on with DNA evidence and and a girl being killed and racism and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about this poem, Threat Assessment? The genesis of that poem was two different things. One was the fact that a whole bunch of us had gotten um, at Virginia Tech, where I work, a death threat email that's included in the poem. And at the same time, my son, who my oldest son, who was really little at the time, he was, I think, seven or eight, put Colin Kaepernick, the, um, the football player, on our Christmas cookie list. Um, and had completely misspelled his name, but I thought it was hilarious that he had just stuck in Colin Kaepernick in between, you know, the school bus driver and one of his teachers as like someone we should make Christmas cookies for. And and around that time, too, there was this break in a case of this woman who had gone missing at University of Virginia. And so all of those things combined led me to thinking about race in really complicated ways. And so that poem was really difficult for me to write in the sense that I was trying to figure something out about about race, about raising one white son and one black son and raising any kind of child right now in an American landscape where gun violence and violence against black and brown bodies is so pervasive. And so that fragility was was what ended up driving the poem. And do you feel like as a teacher yourself and as a mother that sort of you're always assessing the threat levels around you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so So one thing is that um, that's so interesting, I think, about my family sort of background and baggage is that because my parents lived experiences were that, you know, because they were raised in environments where essentially to be blunt, like everyone was trying to kill Jews. <laughs> My sister and I were raised with a particular kind of hypervigilance, you know, that everyone is out to get you, because that was true of my parents and grandparents lived experiences. And so, you know, my sister and I have both chosen to be in helping professions and be very open to the world in particular ways that works against that hypervigilance. But I think one of the things that struck me when we first adopted my youngest son was that that hypervigilance actually really comes in handy sometimes when you're trying to teach, you know, I'm trying to raise my black son to be a proud black man, but there's a certain level of vigilance that he will need to move through the world with that my older white son will not. And so calling on some of my family background in that, you know, also informed, I think, what I was writing about in that poem. But I think any parent who gets the message from the school that comes on your answering machine or your phone that tells you that your kids are currently in a lockdown drill 
has that just moment of heart-stopping terror of, is this just a drill or is it a lockdown? You also say in another one of your poems, there is a space between what we see and the actual, which means there is no such thing as absolute proof, only competing accounts. I'm wondering if you can talk about that line. At first, I just thought about fake news, but I, I know it's deeper than that. I mean, I think the that's the the beauty of narrative. You know, I think about like siblings growing up in a family and how you can have totally different experiences of your own parents or even the same event from different perspectives. I think a lot about narrativity and how the stories we tell ourselves and the language we use can shape our perceptions of things. But I think fake news is an example of that or even how we talk. I was just having this conversation yesterday with one of my friends who's much older. She's in her 60s. And we were talking about how um, like social security is, is called on the news now an entitlement program. And we were in t- talking about how strange that seems since like I've been paying into social security since I was 16 years old and working my first job, you know, but that how that language we use can get loaded or weaponized. Um, and I think stories are the same way that the stories we tell ourselves can really shift our perspectives of things. And in some cases, you know, weaponize it politically or change the quote unquote truth in a way that's really problematic, especially right now. You know, one of the things um, I think about a lot, which is tied to the first poem in the book, is now that all of the Holocaust survivors are dying, it's like this actual moment of panic, I think, for the um, for the Jewish community to some extent, um, because statistics say that there's, you know, an enormous percentage of people in the U.S. don't think the Holocaust actually happened. Um and and as the survivors pass away, there are less actual people who can come speak to groups of students to say, this is what I went through. And so, you know, one of the things I think about a lot when I write poems is how is what I'm doing also a form of testimony? It's interesting because I wrote down, um, you know, these conversations just go where they go. But I wrote down where I wanted to start, which I, I didn't. And I'm I'm glad I didn't. But have this starred question that says, who do you dwell among? And it must have been from a line in one of your poems, but I just wanted to ask you that. And I don't know if I even meant like in your head or when you're writing or if that's even a legitimate question for you to answer. To some extent, that's part of what inspired this book is that my neighbors are who I dwell among, right? But my ancestry and my ghosts and my family of origin are a big part of who I dwell among in my head. And so that disjunction between my physical surroundings and the people currently around me and the people I come from, that tension very much, um, inspired the poems in the book and reconciling that difference, this idea of like, who are my people? And it's so interesting because the, um, and this comes up in one of my poems in Dollar General, but the, when I started researching the verse in Leviticus, you should love your neighbor as yourself in the Talmud and in Hebrew, the word for neighbor, which is reah, 
is actually translated a bunch of different ways. And some um, Talmudic debates um, say you're only supposed to love fellow Jews as yourself. It translates neighbor as as fellow Jew, not as like other or friend, um, like in a more generic way. And so there's still debate among the rabbis about what it means to who's included in the circle of neighbors. And so I think that struggle of like, who who are my people when I don't live um, in a Jewish community, when I don't live in a community of people who are politically like-minded to me, what does that mean? Well, you mentioned Dollar General. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. You're talking about this store in your town. It is the dollar store, and it brings up issues of of Christmas wrapping and buying stocking stuffers and who you would run into if you were there and that that you don't necessarily belong there, but this is where your neighbors are. And then it sort of goes into the fact of of guns and, and buying guns and how easy it is in the state and that one of your child's teachers sells like camouflaged pattern mason jars that she sells at gun shows. And at the same time, she's a very strict teacher. And um, you're just thinking about all of these things that that sort of encapsulate where you live. People go into dollar stores for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things I point out in the poem, um, because what happened in the poem actually happened, is that as I'm in there shopping for, you know, like odds and ends, like cookie tins, um, I run into one of the kindergarten teachers in my son's school who's actually there buying groceries for the week because at the end of the month, people run low, their paychecks run low and you can get smaller quantities for a dollar because everything in the store is a dollar. And that's something I point out in the poem that I've never had to shop there for groceries because I've run out of money because I'm not poor. And so, or strapped for income at the end of the month. One of the really fascinating things to me about living in in exurban America is that we don't have, you know, subways or public transportation or city blocks in the way that people run into each other in cities. So where we interact are chain stores, which appear in my poems quite a bit because that's where humans run into each other at the food lion or the dollar general. You know, one of the things about being part of a fabric of the community is that, um, so for example, my son's former first grade teacher her family runs a business that custom hydro dips guns. So if you have a if you have a gun and you want it in a custom camouflage pattern, they can do that for you. For for example, wedding gifts or whatever you'd want to do that for. But her and her husband are often at different uh like the pumpkin patch or craft fairs. We'll see them at not selling custom hydrative firearms, but selling other stuff to support their booth at gun fairs. We've become friends because she's been my son's teacher. But every year when the our county board talks about raising property taxes to go give teachers raises because our teachers are so wildly underpaid, I go to the meetings and argue for higher teacher pay because I was a public school teacher before I taught university and feel very strongly that we underpay our teachers. So here's someone whose um, family business seems to like, you know, undermine my anti-gun stance, but yet we're friends because she's cared for my child and because she knows that I'll go to the mat for her for teacher pay. 
So I guess it's really, it's part of, part of me trying to work out what it means to be in a community are these strange intersections that we have with each other. Can we talk about the poem Too Strong? Sure. So in this poem, you are, it seems like you're at some sort of artist residency and everyone has sort of stopped their work to watch uh, the Cleveland, Cleveland play the Golden State Warriors in basketball. And you're talking about how other people there are all into the basketball and you're sort of reflecting on Cleveland, which is where your husband is from and how it's a very violent and poor place. And you're talking about LeBron James and what he's he's brought to the game. And then you start talking about the Orlando massacre and a woman in Colorado who fought off a mountain lion attacking her five-year-old son, wrenching it from the jaws and gun violence and kind of getting back to who we are in our communities and how we face that violence. Yeah. So that poem came from a really interesting project. I was, um, one of the things I do kind of outside my books is I often go on the road with documentary photographers, sometimes on commission, sometimes not, um, to report on social issues in urban spaces Virginia Quarterly Review commissioned me to do a project on Detroit right before bankruptcy that's in their magazine. And then the year I wrote the poem Too Strong, which is the year that Cleveland won the NBA championships or the Cavs won the NBA championships, I went on the road with a photographer named Ryan Spencer Reed to report on the Republican National Convention in verse and in photo. And so in trying to prepare for that project, which doesn't appear in the book at all other than that one poem, but is online, I started thinking about Cleveland a lot and writing about Cleveland. And I was in residence at McDowell Colony in New Hampshire when the basketball championships were on. One of the things that's actually surprising to me in general about Holy Moly Carry Me is how relevant the book has stayed. Because when I wrote it, I thought that we would somehow that that mass shootings wouldn't keep happening. So I was editing the book at McDowell in New Hampshire, thinking like this book is going to be obsolete before it's even published, because I started writing it after Newtown and the Sandy Hook shootings. But while I was editing it, the Orlando shootings happened, which displaced Virginia Tech, where I teach as the worst mass shooting in US history. You know, parts of the book just keep feeling relevant in ways I wish it didn't. Um, but with that particular poem, we were all watching the the championships. And Cleveland is such an underdog that that watching them win and watching LeBron carry this team became this almost epic thing. And so weirdly disjunctive for all of us as artists in different fields to care about. One of the things that happened when I did go to Cleveland with with Ryan to do this project is the easiest opener for us to start talking to strangers was to ask them if they had been downtown for the the parade, the, the Cavs celebration. And so connecting to people through basketball was one way that helped me do this bigger documentary project on, you know, what does it mean that the Republican National Convention is in Cleveland, the predominantly African-American city that's the second poorest city in the country beyond Detroit. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I was going to read a piece of um, 
a poem called The Incognito Lounge by Dennis Johnson, who a lot of people know as a fiction writer, but his his book of the same name, The Incognito Lounge, was a really big influence on my writing. Um, so I'm just going to read a little portion of The Incognito Lounge. The center of the world is closed. The beehive, the eight ball, the yo-yo, the granite and the lightning and the melody. Only the incognito lounge is open. My neighbor arrives. They have the television on. It's a show about my neighbor in a loneliness, a light, walking the hour when every bed is a mouth, alleys of dark trash, exhaustion shaped into residences, and what are the dogs so sure of that they shout like citizens driven from their minds in a stadium? In his fist, he holds a note in his own handwriting, the same message everyone carries from place to place in the secret night, the one that nobody asks you for when you finally arrive, and the faces turn to you playing the national anthem and go blank. That's what the show is about, that message. Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose that? Sure. So one of the lines in there haunts me a lot and is very, I think, um, relevant to the to Holy Moly Carry Me, which is, it's a show about my neighbor in a loneliness, a light, walking the hour when every bed is a mouth. And this idea that we're all connected, even if it's just through our own struggle with loneliness, is something that really, I think... I think about a lot. The other thing I love about that little portion of the poem is it names all these dive bars. It doesn't just say like a bar. It says the beehive, the eight ball, the yo-yo. One of the things I, I try not to do in all of my work, but in this book in particular, I don't iron out the names of commercial spaces or of brand names or of products because so much of our life is shaped by them, even if they seem kind of unpoetic in some way. And so part of that, I think, comes from not just that poem, but but it was that's a poem I've gone back to for years and years that I found in my, you know, early 20s, 20 years ago, that really influenced the way that I include commercial space in my work. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read a portion of Threat Assessment. And that's a poem I really, really struggled with in terms of both the lineation. I must have relineated it over 100 times. And also um, because it braids together so many different topics. And also because it talks about really complicated things to do with race. Murderer Robert Stroud was sent to Alcatraz after guards discovered he had been secretly making alcohol in his cell. Stripped of his birds, he wrote a history of the penal system called Looking Outward. Stroud served 42 of his 54 years in solitary confinement, is considered the most famous case of rehabilitation and self-improvement in an American prison. Each year, a turkey vulture raises two chicks, which it feeds by regurgitation. I have two sons. My older son is white and my younger son is black. Colin Kaepernick, once the San Francisco 49ers backup quarterback, refused and still refuses to stand for the national anthem before games in protest of wrongdoings against African-Americans and minorities in this country. One year, my older son, who watches a lot of football on television, added Colin Kaepernick to the penciled Christmas cookie list I left on the kitchen counter 
tucked his name between Mr. Tom, school bus driver, and Bridget, administrative assistant. Kaepernick is biracial, identifies as black, and like my youngest son, was adopted by a white family when he was an infant. The first time our youngest son mentioned the color of his skin on his own was at the stables where my mother took him to ride ponies because he's obsessed with them. He pointed and said, that horse is brown like me. I have a shot of him on the brown horse in a blue helmet with a serious expression on his face. His helmet is the same color as those of the riot police I see in every city lined up across from protesters holding signs that say no justice, no peace, or I can't breathe, or Black Lives Matter. And I think you explained why you chose that, but do you want to add anything? So one of the things that's really interesting about writing about race in the in that particular poem, or one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, is how to indicate race in a poem when it's important. That's something I struggled with in there, too, because it was important to note who was white in the poem and who was black in the poem for the narrative. And so um, how, how to race people in poems and indicate what race they are is something I was really trying to figure out in there from a narrative standpoint. Where do you write? So um, I write all over the place. I'm actually a I don't know, is omnivorous the right word? Um, or, or multi-locational writer. I write a lot on the notepad of my phone in my car in parking lots. Part of that comes out of um, when my kids were babies and they'd fall asleep in the car. I'd be like trapped in my own driveway and I couldn't take them out of the car seat unless I wanted them to wake up. So I would start writing on my phone notepad. And I still do that in parking lots in sort of time between. I write in coffee shops. I write at my kitchen counter while there's chaos going on around me. Um, and I'm really good at, at filtering out noise. And so uh, I write all over the place. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I usually go on long walks or hikes um, because I live in Appalachia. It's pretty easy to walk out my door and be in the mountains very quickly. But I often take my phone with me to listen to music. And sometimes if something strikes me, I'll also write while I'm walking. So I don't know that I ever get away from it. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I have a um, group of poets scattered across the country who meet for two to four weeks at a time. And we write a poem a day for a very compressed period of time. And the composition of the groups is always changing. But I have a few people um, from that group who do stay consistent, who um, sometimes look at my work in draft form and comment on it. But at this point, I actually don't show my work in draft form to very many people. Most of the time, because I've been writing for about 25 years, I can finish stuff without feedback unless I'm really, really stuck with on, on something or with something. How have you dealt with rejection? Back when I was uh, doing my MFA, I had a classmate named Kevin McFadden, who's now um, the director of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. And we had a lounge in our MFA program at UVA. Um, and Kevin had made this sculpture, like a paper mache sculpture of all his rejection slips. And we dubbed it the Death Mask of Lit Magamemnon. And there was like chewing gum in it. We put all kinds of things in it. And when people had rejection slips, they'd bring it and add it to the mask. 
And so um, it taught me, that taught me to be, um, have a sense of humor about rejection and not to necessarily try to get rejected, but this idea that, that rejection can also be a badge of honor. And so um, I'm not thin skinned about applying for things and getting rejected. And so uh, I think part of it comes from, from Kevin's death mask of Lit Magamemnon. And what is your favorite word? Right now, I really love the word defenestration, to throw something out the window. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was poet Erica Meitner, author of Holy Moly, Carry Me. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.